what do the concept of sharing and rules have in common? Sharing and rules. I don't think I'm the only one. I'm hoping you would agree with me, but I think that we'd all agree that sharing and rules are very good things for other people to do. Right? Sharing's a great concept when somebody else has something that I want and I hope they share it with me. Rules are great for other people to shape up their lives and get their act together, but not always when it's, it's on me so much. I'm not always as inclined to share my stuff with others, and rules I prefer to be rather selective for the ones that uh, I'm either pretty good at keeping or prefer to keep and avoid the ones that I don't. But as we reflect on the words of Jesus as he continues his sermon this morning, the rules, the law that Jesus lays out for us is not an optional thing. We don't get to pick and choose when it comes to God's law, which is really a record of prohibitions, the things that we aren't supposed to do, and commands, the things that we are supposed to do. And no matter how you look at any time that we evaluate or, or we hear, read, study God's law, it leaves us convicted, accused, condemned, because that's what the law does when it is given to sinners. It shows not only what God expects of us, but also demonstrates very clearly where we have fallen short of those expectations. And that's all that the law, in some fashion or form, in one way or another, that's all that God's law is going to do for us. It's going to expose the weaknesses of our inability to keep it. God's law shows us our imperfection. But it doesn't in any way mean that God allows us or permits us to set aside his law, does it? In fact, as, as we look at the words of Jesus, he doesn't diminish or downplay God's law. In fact, what he does with God's law is he takes it to another level. That's the thing about God's law. If we ever slip into that pharisaical false sense of security, we can look at another angle or nuance of God's law and it will convict us in an entirely different way, which is what we hear in the words of Jesus. He addresses some very common sins, rather ordinary sins that are familiar to us, but then he takes them a step further and makes us reflect on them in ways that we hadn't maybe thought of, which are ways that then would knock us off our personal pedestal if we thought we were doing a pretty good job. He talks about murder, but then makes it clear that actually ending a person's life is really only a byproduct of the real issue, which is hatred in my heart. So what Jesus is telling us in this section of his sermon is that you don't even have to take somebody's life to deserve the judgment that, that murder deserves. If hatred is in your heart, you are guilty. And Jesus talks about sexual immorality and adultery. And he says that, guess what? You don't even need to take a single article of clothing off to be guilty of it. If you've got eyeballs, those are a window into your heart where lust can lure you into the same thoughts that in God's mind are simply a, a, the real issue. 
you don't need to, to take an official oath or sign an official contract or agreement to break your word. All you have to do is, is tell somebody that you're going to do it and then not do it, and suddenly we all become unreliable, untrustworthy liars. So as Jesus lays out the law for us, I don't think any of us, and, and this probably applies to you, I would imagine as you heard the words of Jesus, you weren't feeling real great about yourself. And we don't hear those words of Jesus walking away on, on cloud nine thinking that we are doing a pretty good job. And if we did, then we can't help but come to grips with one of the most stern, harshest, blunt realities that Jesus gives about sin when he gives the warning that he did in verses 29 and 30. He said, If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And we hear that warning from Jesus and we're very quick to jump on the, well, that's just hyperbole. That's just Jesus using an exaggeration. He's not literally saying to gouge out your eyes and lob off your, lop off your limbs. But you realize he actually is saying that. Not just with one sin, but if there is some repetitive sin that leads you into impenitence, that leads you, as King David was for a time, outside the kingdom of God, would it not be a better thing to not have that body parts that engages in that sin and go in hell than the alternative? Absolutely, Jesus says. The point Jesus is making is that sin is not something to be made light of. It is not something to be trifled with. It is not something we can casually pick up and allow it to entertain us for a while and then set it back down when, when it has served us well. Sin won't stand for that. Sin isn't interested in sharing your soul with the Savior. It wants complete control over you. And when we get more comfortable with sin rather than confessing sin, we're in a very dangerous place. That's Jesus' point in these words. And I suppose that's a, a lesson that, that we should have learned a long time ago that God was trying to establish about the seriousness of sin. When you go all the way back to the first chapters of Genesis and we see the two brothers, Cain and Abel, immediately after their offerings were given up to the Lord, and the Lord said there was something off with Cain's. His was not given out of a, a thankful, grateful heart. He was going through the motions and God called him out on it. He said, but be careful because if this sin left unchecked, if nothing changes, bad things are going to happen. Do you remember what the Lord said to, to Cain at that time? He said in verse 7 of chapter 4 in Genesis, If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. That's the picture of sin that Jesus warns us about. It isn't nonchalant and indifferent. It is crouching. It is waiting to pounce because it doesn't want to share us with Jesus. It wants to own us. It wants to master us. It wants to divide us from who Jesus is and what he's done. 
And the valid, the validity of, of that warning that the Lord gave to, to Cain, sadly, was shown immediately after that warning. And Cain went out into a field with his brother and committed the first record of murder described for us in Scripture. So sin is not to be trifled with or taken lightly. Jesus wants us to take it seriously. But if I, I were to ask you so far this morning or in any of the readings as it pertains to God's law, have I said anything that you haven't heard already? Had you not heard the words of Jesus? I'm guessing that we're familiar with all of these words, that, that we're pretty clear on a pretty basic symbol. This, I hope, doesn't blow your mind, but I, I think we all agree sin is bad. Sin's bad, right? We'd agree that sin left unchecked and, and unaddressed results in, in hell. Okay? Jesus warns about that very thing. So if we recognize that sin is bad, we, we don't want it in our lives, that it can potentially, if unchecked and unaddressed and unrepented, lead to hell, then why don't we just stop it? We have God's law to lay out very clearly for us what's right and what's wrong. We know how devastating it can be. Why don't we just stop sinning? Because the words of Jesus in this portion of his sermon that are law don't equip us for that. The law cannot, it cannot equip us or, or embolden us or enable us to do any of those things. All it can do is lay out God's law for us. It can lay out what God wants for us and how we ought to live, but it has absolutely zero power, no power whatsoever to equip us to do those things. That, dear friends, as you know, is why Jesus had to come. Jesus was not merely a second Moses. He didn't come to, to do what Moses did the first time in codifying God's law on, on the tablets as he came down from Sinai and then relaying them to God's people. We don't need Jesus to come into the world and, and give us another set of rules or laws. We already had them in the Old Testament and we demonstrate every single day of our lives that we can't even keep those. So what good would it be for Jesus to come in and bring us more laws to follow, to stop sinning? No, Jesus came for a greater purpose. And if you remember last Sunday, he spelled that out in a huge portion of his sermon. Just a, a little section, but in verse 17, earlier in his sermon, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And what did Jesus mean? But I did not come to set aside the law. I came to fulfill it. I came to keep it. I came to do what you could not do. That's why Jesus matters. So Jesus came into this world so that his obedience would count for our disobedience, so that his sanctification would cover our sin. The very commands that Jesus gives are the commands that Jesus himself kept. One of the, one of the knocks that people have against Christians, whether it's Christian preachers or Christians in general, is that we're all a bunch of, of hypocrites. That we, 
We don't waste any time pointing out what's wrong with everybody else in the world where everybody else is doing what they shouldn't be doing or not doing what they should be doing and then ignore or dismiss the fact that we do those very things. Now, of course, if the criteria for being able to point out when somebody was doing something wrong or right required that we couldn't do those things ourselves, then nobody on the planet could talk. Nobody could say anything. Because by that standard, we would all be hypocrites. In fact, the only individual that has ever walked this earth to whom that label of hypocrite could not apply was Jesus, who literally practiced what he preached and practiced it perfectly. And he kept those very commands that he gives in his sermon. He kept them perfectly. Why? Not for his benefit. Jesus was holy when he left heaven. He didn't need to prove anything. He already had holiness. It's the essence of God. It's who he is. He came to be holy to show his holiness, to keep those commands for you, for me. And he did just that. And not only that, not only did his perfect obedience replace our disobedience and, and cover over it, not only did his sanctification cover our sin, but God didn't just change his mind about sin. Jesus did more than that. He actually paid for our sin. He washed away our sin. So this is what we are left with. Jesus' perfect record of obedience is placed on us and our sin is placed on him. And that is where we stand before God. Faultless, guiltless, without blame, a perfect record of obedience. That means that you're free. It means that God's law isn't a burden that crushes you with guilt. That means that we are actually free to live the holy lives that Jesus calls us to live. Not out of fear or coercion that we must measure up before God. God doesn't need that from you. He has it in Christ. Perfection has been attained. Obedience has already been offered up to the Father on your behalf through Jesus. And he hit it out of the park. So now, dear friends, that leaves us free. Free to live the holy lives that he has called us to. Now, why should you want to do that? I'm going to leave you with three reasons this morning as we seek to live the holy lives that God has called us to. One, it shows our love for God. Two, it serves our neighbor. And three... It feels good. The first one is probably the most commonly repeated in Scripture. When you consider all of the things, all of the reasons behind obedience for God, a great example, I suppose, would be in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. He explains to us, This is love for God to keep His commands. And His commands are not burdensome. We keep His commands because it shows God that we love Him. Now, surely we tell him we love him. We tell others that we love him. But that's a different thing than showing it. Just as it is in a marriage. Surely a husband and a wife can express those words verbally. They can, they can speak to each other of their, their love. But blessed is the marriage where it isn't just words, but it's actions. It's things that are done to show 
not just speak, but to show love. So it is in our relationship with God. We get to show how much we love him through our actions. And here's the byproduct. As you are doing that, as you are showing love to God, you are also carrying out the second reason you are serving your neighbor. If you think through of all of the things and reflect on this section of Jesus, our Savior's sermon today, won't your neighbor be blessed and served as you carry those out? As you respect God's gift of sex and marriage the way that he intended, your neighbor is actually served. Their marriage is kept pure and holy. They aren't forced or enticed into sin. As you treat your neighbor with gentleness and patience instead of anger that would would seek to, to end their life if you could and knew you wouldn't get in trouble for it, the way that the world acts and responds flying off the handle, your neighbor is blessed by your patience and your gentleness. When you give your word to your neighbor and you keep it, you follow through on the things that you say you're going to do and the promises that you make, your neighbor is served. Does that mean that your, your neighbor is always going to acknowledge it? No. Is your neighbor even going to appreciate it or say thank you? Not necessarily. Is your neighbor going to come to faith through the ways that you serve him, through your actions? No. That's not how it works. But, as we said last Sunday, it may very well be the first step in that process of eventually connecting your neighbor to their Savior, Jesus. Heard a wonderful example yesterday, the luncheon after Harry's memorial service, of a friend who shared that they had come to faith because of Margie and and Harry, letting their light shine, as we said last Sunday, making the world better and brighter. And that had an eternal impact. And it can as we serve our neighbor too. So love God as you live holy lives. Serve your neighbor and do it because it feels good. I know that might sound a little bit goofy and probably off, especially if you were raised in in the Lutheran church. We don't really talk about doing good works because it feels good. But I'd invite you to read through the Psalms. And take some time to reflect on how the psalmists describe when they are are carrying out the things that the Lord calls them to do, to live holy and righteous lives. Look at all of the pictures associated with that. Pictures of pleasantness. The imagery that is associated and that is evoked through those psalms is one of a pretty good life, of blessings that are to be enjoyed. But I think that we, we tend to focus too much on the failures. When we, when we set out to work in this area or that area of our Christian living and say, I'm really going to try to do better at this area, the minute that we fail, we zero in on that failure and see, ah, see, I just can't do it. And we forget to celebrate the successes in those efforts. We forget to take time to thank God to say, thank you, I'm, I'm trying to live the holy life that you called me to, not out of guilt or, or not because I have to please you, but because I get to, and you allowed me to do that. Thank you for that. Think of the alternative. Think of the last time, and you probably don't have to go too far back in your uh, surveillance of, of your mind, your memory. The last time that you sinned, How did that feel? Not the sin itself, 
Maybe the sin was even enjoyable at that time, but knowing that it was sin, the result is guilt. When it hits you what you did, guilt doesn't feel so great. But you know what does? Doing the right thing. Doing the thing that God set you free to do. Doing the thing that you get to do, not because you have to measure up, but because Jesus already did for you. Do that thing. And God will bless you with with good feelings and you will enjoy doing it in the process. So dear friends, go in and live holy lives. Jesus has already set you free to do that thing. Go live holy lives because it feels good and in the process, you're showing love to God and you're serving your neighbor. Amen.